This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, popular science author Mary Roach discusses her new book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Then PW bookselling editor Judith Rosen previews this year's ABC Children's Institute. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. And maybe we'll start off with nonfiction. Sure, go for it. We don't have a lot. Uh, Number one, we have uh, not a book by Bill O'Reilly, but by David Fisher called Bill O'Reilly's Legends and Lies, The Patriots. And this is a companion to Bill O'Reilly's historic docudrama, Legends and Lies, The Patriots. And so this is this is a tie into that by David Fisher. Then we have from Sebastian Younger, Tribe, on Homecoming and Belonging. And we say in, in our review, in this small but perfectly lucid book, Younger meditates on tribal sentiment, how it aids loyalty and belonging and the internal human quest for meaning and how the disappearance of the sentiment has had toxic consequences for modern societies. We say that Younger suggests that the U.S. could cure its ills if we could only focus on the collective good. And this is about tribes and tribal behavior. Then we have from Tim McGraw, the Grammy Award winning country music singer, Humble and Kind. This is more like an inspirational guide than it is a memoir. So, And that's, a- and that's at number 12. And then at number 16 by Nora McInerney Pumort. It's okay to laugh. Crying is cool too. We don't have a review of this, but this is by a 27-year-old Nora Pumort. Bounce from boyfriend to dopey boyfriend. I'm reading from the publicity material until she met Aaron. And this is just a, a kind of a, uh, a memoir about that. And Lena Dunham blurbs, the story will compel you to both laugh and cry, just as the title promises. May we all bring Nora's honesty, passion, and hope to our lives. And then finally, we have at number 29, uh, again, not a lot here. We have a book of translation. It's called Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets by uh, Svetlana Alexievich, uh, translated from the Russian by Bel- and this is Ukrainian-born Belarusian writer and winner of the 2015 Nobel Prize for Literature, just last year's prize, documents the last days of the Soviet Union and the transition to capitalism and a soul-wrenching oral history that reveals the very different sides of the Russian experience. And of course, this is this is someone who who has still been in the news uh, just by her her you know, her books and of course by the uh, uh, the Nobel Prize that she got for literature last year. That's all we have. That's at number 29. Well, there's not a lot going on in fiction either. Um, I, I want to note, uh, first of all, on the children's side of things, the number one book uh, on our bestseller list overall is a children's book, a YA book. Uh, it's The Last Star, which is the third book in Rick Yancey's Fifth Wave trilogy. Mm. 50,000 copies sold in its first week out. Very Great. respectable um, and a much bigger start than the previous two books had. 
Uh, and that's giving the other books in the series a boost. Um, the Infinite Sea, which is the second book, is at number six uh, in the trade paper edition. And the movie tie-in edition of The Fifth Wave is at number 16. The movie was considered kind of a disappointment mm. at the box office, but uh, the books seem pretty bulletproof. Mm -hmm. So uh, good for him. And Great. meanwhile, over in fiction land, uh, we have a new number one, which is The City of Mirrors by Justin Cronin, uh, which is the conclusion to the apocalypse thriller trilogy that began with The Passage and The Twelve. So this is the, the City of Mirrors. We gave it a starred review, and we say that, as in the previous two novels, Cronin skillfully manages a large cast of characters, all of whom he has endowed with fully developed personalities that engage the reader emotionally. And obviously the plot is going to be pretty dependent on what happened in the first two mm -hmm. books. Um, but uh, yeah, our review says this novel is a superb capstone to a modern horror thriller epic. Right. So a very strong, positive review there. And uh, then moving down the list uh, quite a bit, actually, to get to the next new book on the list. Uh, number 14 is The Sorcerer's Daughter by Terry Brooks. This is book three in The Defenders of Shannara, which is part of the incredibly long-running Shannara series. I think these books have been being published approximately since I was born. And uh, now there's uh, you know, wow. some more excitement <laughs> going on. Yeah, no, it's uh, been around a, a very, very long time. Um, this is the 28th novel in the series. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, um, you can only write so many books before maybe you start running a little short right. of material. And uh, our review says that lazy writing and unremarkable characters and situations will leave readers disappointed in this book. But, uh, you know, that didn't stop them from uh, buying 4,500 copies its first week out, right. um, which is enough to get it up on the list. And at number 15, uh, we have Sweet Bitter by Stephanie Dandler. Uh, this we also gave a starred review to um, at, uh, Literary Fiction. We say that this debut novel is a quintessential coming-of-age story set in a remorseless, unusual city. Uh, this setting is the behind-the-scenes milieu of a celebrated restaurant in 2006 Manhattan. Um, so obviously lots of books are set in New York, but this one takes a particular unusual view uh, and uh, we say that the the heroine's voice is evoked in, as intimate, confiding, wonderstruck, depressed, uh, all created with deft skill. And this novel is a treat that's sure to find a big following. Great. So this nice to like see it on list. the list. Yeah. Um, always happy to you know, when when the readers agree with us. Perfect. Exactly. And that's uh, that's pretty much what's going on in the bestsellers this week. Not a lot of movement, but I'm sure we're going to keep seeing more big summer blockbuster books. Yeah, definitely. Out. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Mary Roach tells us how she dug into the strange and wonderful world of military science. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ron Miscavige, and I'm the author of Rootless, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Mary Roach on the line. Her new book is Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Hello, Mary. So glad you could join us. Oh, hello. Thanks for having me on. So I, I want to ask first, how did you come up with this subject? It, it seems both wonderfully simultaneously broad and narrow. <laughs> I came up with it in a kind of an unusual way. I was reporting a story in India on the world's hottest chili pepper and this sort of brutal chili pepper eating contest in India. Uh, this was for a magazine piece. And I heard about, someone told me the military in India had 
weaponized this Chile, and I thought, well, I better report on that. And I went over to the Indian Defense Ministry Science Branch, and and indeed they had done this. But while I was there, just talking to people, oh, one guy was working on a leech repellent. Someone that else was talking about some the, some psychology arm of the military that had over there that had looked into telepathy. And I went, wow, military science is is not all bullets and bombs. It's really kind of esoteric and broad and really fascinating. It, you know, the military has a big budget. So they, you know, they have all of these labs and all these kind of, you know, wonderful places for Mary Roach to go and explore. So that's kind of how I, that's sort of what planted the seed. And then I uh, got rolling. I didn't get anywhere with the Indian uh, military, but the uh, U.S. military was, uh, was uh, more welcoming. I was amazed by the level of access that you got, that you just, it, at least from reading the book, it sounded like you just kind of strolled in and they showed you everything. Is is that, is, I mean, I'm sure it, it wasn't exactly Hello, like Mary that. Roach. <laughs> but, Open but your how, door. How did you make that happen? Um, well, I, I, having dealt with NASA for packing for Mars, I, I knew that uh, it would be helpful to have some approval up front from as high as possible so that people at various echelons would feel like, well, I'm not getting in trouble if the person at the top is okay with this book. And there is, at the at the Pentagon, there's a um, public affairs office for books. And it's very, uh, it's not like they really know what you're doing, because I didn't know what I'm doing at, at that time. I gave them a sort of broad uh, sort of sketch of what I thought that would be in the book. And then they just sort of send an email saying, you know, we we're okay with this. And that doesn't mean that anybody you then contact is required to speak to you. It doesn't mean that they're going to review your book. It's just sort of a nod of, we know who you are and what you do, and we're okay with this. You know, I'm not doing Zero Dark Thirty. I'm really not <laughs> the, the person that is keeping them up at night. I'm Mary Roach writing about their science. So um, it, it's kind of a, um, it's something I think that they welcomed in a way because a lot of this work doesn't, really get much exposure, kind of fall to the cracks. So that was sort of how I did it. And you say that your interest in the military and soldiers was piqued not by armaments, uh, but by, quote, exhaustion, shock, bacteria, panic, and ducks. And what? Oh, ducks, yes. <laughs> ducks, yes. So, so tell us about those things. Tell us about how, how maybe one, two, or all of them uh, play in, 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 your, in your narrative. Well, I, I tend to write about the human body in extreme circumstances, unusual circumstances, and combat is really one of those. It's about as extreme. It's extreme noise, extreme heat, extreme sleep deprivation, panic, bugs, flies, infectious diseases. Uh, the ducks was sort of a side thing. Um, so it, it, it kind of fit my, I was going to say my oeuvre, but I hate to say that word, oeuvre. But uh, it, it fit in. It fit in nicely because, and all of those things, I felt we all experience heat and fear and sleep loss. So I thought there might be a broad. You know, it might resonate on a fairly broad level with people, even if they don't think of themselves as people who read books about the military. So that's kind of um, my hope. And so, tell us a little bit about, uh, for instance, for about exhaustion and, and heat. How how do soldiers? experience that? I mean, I know you talk, you go into, you, you touch on the history of warfare as well. And, and what did you find? Well, uh, 
is uh, has been a tremendous concern lately because the U.S. military has been operating in some very hot places. And you're not only is it hot out, but you are you're wearing body armor and you're carrying a heavy load and you're exerting yourself, and that's a recipe for heat injury and heat. A heat stroke being the most extreme version of that, and that can be fatal and sometimes is. So the military is looking at, I was over at um, uh, the medical school uses outside D.C. where they were doing a study. They, have a, they call it the cookbox, and you go in and it's very hot, and they have you on a treadmill, and they, yeah, they, 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 they are looking. In that case, they were specifically looking at are there ways to identify individuals who are very susceptible to heat stroke, to heat injury, and if you and maybe a blood mark or something genetic, because there's a lot of individual difference. Some people just crumple in the heat, and other people soldier on, as they say. And they're trying to figure out how is there a way to identify medically identify these folks and keep them out of extreme circumstances like that uh, if, while they're deployed. That is, so that that's what was going on uh, with the heat study. And of course, I got in there with the backpack on and. <laughs> the rectal thermometer probe and marched along on the treadmill uh, for about seven minutes, I think, with the full tre- with the full backpack on, and and then um, uh, it was time. I completely flushed, and I'm I'm not one of those people who you could send into uh, Afghanistan with a heavy pack and <laughs> uh, body armor and expect them to function well. So a lot of your research, you, you, I, I mean, it, you, you, you try this out yourself. I mean, so such the, so such like the heat box. Um, what was that like? What did you gain from that? What did you learn from that? I learned that, that it is unbelievably difficult to, uh, I mean, I couldn't, I, I, to be a soldier, to be, um, deployed in circumstances like that. I remember the first time, um, there was a, there was a, the first time I, I, I just not, didn't even put on, I picked up a, a body armor vest. Like, and I, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not completely out of shape, but it was hard for me just to, to lift that thing mm. and to imagine wearing that with a backpack that, you know, with, with like, so like a hundred pounds of weight on your back and to be moving over a long period of time in heat. It just unbelievable. I mean, I was experiencing like a fraction of what these men and women experience and it's it's pretty stunning how they i mean they they're uh, they're it's amazing that they're able to do it and willing to do it so um kind of a abrupt awakening i guess you could say and speaking of the the things that people endure you have an entire chapter about amputees tell us tell us a little bit about that and about how medical science is helping them well i i have a chapter about um Specifically about something called eurotrauma, as in urological trauma. So it's it's uh, it wasn't a chapter about um, amputees per se. It was about uh, a problem that has received a lot less coverage, uh, uh, which is um, damage to the, to the genitals. Because uh, and, and this is something that there wasn't as much work in this area for a long time because for two reasons. One, the, uh, the explosions, the explosions have, the bombs have gotten bigger. So now you're not just amputating, um, a foot or a leg. The damage is going up higher to the pelvic region. And now when that used to ha- it used to be when you had an explosion that big, the patient would typically die. And now they're because of advances in 
combat trauma care. They're, they're surviving and now needing reconstructive work. And so there was, um, I, I saw a, a surgery at Walter Reed where they were rebuilding a urethra, which was kind of amazing. They take tissue from inside the cheek because it's hairless and it's, um, can withstand moisture and they actually fashion, fashion a new urethra, which is a tube that you pee out of. So that, and uh, yeah, and that, that was amazing. They also, uh, that, um, penis transplants are now, the first one was done a couple of weeks ago. I was present at a cadaver lab where they were, uh, working out some of the details of which arteries would we take, which are the most important. Um, they had a cadaver and they hooked up the artery to a IV bag of blue liquid. And then when the blue liquid would flow, you'd see kind of, it almost looked like a time lapse bruise where you'd see where the, this liquid was going and that would tell you, all right, this is an important artery to take because it feeds all of this tissue and we would need that to keep, you know, to keep the transplant alive. So they were working on that in the lab, in the cadaver lab. So I was there for that, which was uh, fascinating. This was at Johns Hopkins uh, Medical Center. You, in, in the book, you write so appreciatively of of the cadavers, of the, the bodies that are used for um, finding out what happens when a bomb goes off or for um, medical research like this. And uh, I was wondering if, if that dates back to your book, Stiff, to, to this, this appreciation um, to the people who give their bodies to science and then to the bodies themselves. Yes, very much so, yeah. Uh, I, I came to see cadavers, uh, research cadavers as these sort, sort of like superheroes in a sense because since they feel no pain, uh, and they don't, they don't care what, what's done with them. The person who donated the body really just wants to be helpful and that's it. And so, you know, so it's a situation where you can, you can remove a leg and you can test, say, uh, you know, make a, like a safer outboard motor for a boat to make, you know, make sure it's not going to damage a swimmer who gets too close to it. You can, you know, things that you could never do with a person, obviously, and that you can't, there's no kind of computerized simulator that will give you the answers. You have these dead people who are like, you know what, I'll do it. I I want to help and I don't feel any pain. So it is this kind of superpower for the betterment of mankind. And uh, I, I, I'm so impressed when people make the decision to donate their bodies and also have a tremendous amount of um, respect for the people who do the work because, you know, they they have to deal with a lot of misunderstanding and, and people thinking, oh, that's disrespectful or that sounds brutal. It's very hard for people to separate because a cadaver looks like a person. It's hard for them to separate a cadaver from a, a real person. And, you know, and you, you don't have to treat a cadaver the same way you treat a person is they don't feel any pain and they're not alive, but they look, they look like a person. So it's, mm. it's, it's a difficult area. Uh, it's, it's sometimes fraught. And, uh, so anyway, I have a lot of respect for all the people who do that work and, and the people who donate. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Mary Roach, author of Grunt and other books on uh, popular science and medical science. How did you start writing about science as a, as a topic in general? I was writing for very early on in my career. I wrote for uh, a magazine called Hippocrates, which wrote, uh, which covered medicine, health, the human body, and uh, and it was a wonderful magazine. And I, the, I started there only because uh, the an editor I had worked with at a um, the Sunday magazine in my home city, San Francisco, got a job there, so she sort of took me along with her. So it was really the first magazine feature writing I'd done, and it had to do with the human body and health, medicine. So it was it was a I kind of fell into this beat and really enjoyed it, even though I don't have a back I don't have a background in medicine or even in science. So um it was all new to me and all fascinating. So and I kind of kept on that path, although I wrote uh more general magazine features as well. So you were writing magazines and then you had the opportunity to write uh stiff. How did that come about? Um and and you, you said that you're not necessarily a science person. You don't you don't have a background in science. Um, how did you feel when approaching that subject? Um, well, I'll, I'll answer the second part first. Uh, I would love to have a background in science more than I have now because it would make my job easier. But on the other side of that, because every I'm coming at everything with uh, the eyes of a Explorer, uh, I, you know, the human body is, I don't know, I just don't know how it works. And then I just, I just, you know, my sense of wonder and curiosity is, is intact. It's still, it's still there. I, I think, I think, uh, when, when you are a scientist and you, you, you get more and more advanced in your work, you know, you, you, you what interests you becomes a little different from what interests the, the person who doesn't have a background in science. So I, I guess I, I'm coming at the topics from a place that's similar to most of my readers. So I think I, I, you know, I don't, um, I'm excited about exploring how the body works in the way that, you know, a seventh grader taking a a biology class might be, you know, uh, I I have this, I am, I'm kind of, um, still in that state of wonder. So that's a good thing, but it does make the job a little more difficult because I'm I'm always worried that I'm not going to get it right, that I don't, because I don't have the background. I may have the details right, but I'm missing something in the big picture. And I'm always, I'm always worried about that with my books that I, um, I don't have a deepened grasp of the subject matter. So, because I'm having to kind of educate myself as I go along. Right, right. And so doing the research, uh, checking, checking everything. Um, but, but obviously you, you, you know, you, you put it all in this, uh, in a really great engaging narrative structure. Um, and, and how do you do that? How do you find the structure of your book? I start out with looking for the narrative structure. That's my, my main priority. When I, when I decide on a topic, I, Spend a few months uh, poking around, uh, get, getting on PubMed, seeing who the main players might be, contacting these people and saying, what have you got cooking in the next six months? What's going to be going on over the next year? Is there something I might come and be there for? So I'm, I'm almost like more like a documentary filmmaker in that I'm, I'm finding my locations because I want to have a, a narrative. Like you said, I want to have a 
setting with things happening and people talking and character. Uh, so I think it helps to, you know, and they all have the, this narrative structure on which to kind of hang the science and the facts. And, and I, I have to set up this, that, that narrative first, and then I can go in and, and insert the facts in appropriate places, the science that is, and the explanations. I can do it in the context of a conversation in a lab or in an operating room or a prison, who knows. And so it's, you know, weaving the narrative with the science, um, that, yeah, that's, that's how, that's how it happens. But, but my priority up front is finding the, the narrative, the, the place I'm going to go and the people who will be featured. So, uh, so and once I have them, it's almost, you know, I feel like, ah, the chapter's all set. I'm done. So you mentioned with Grunt that it was in India, you do, you, you came across the chili pepper that, that they would use for warfare. Uh, and then you started making inquiries, uh, uh, various U.S. government bodies. How did you come up with the structure for the narrative structure for Grunt? Um, I, again, I started out, um, the first place I went was the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System and set a conversation there. And while I was there, I met someone at the medical school, Uniform Services Unit. University of Health Sciences, uh, who this this woman knew folks at Walter Reed. She she said, "What are you interested in?" And I mentioned a few things. She she put me in touch with people. So um, that trip led to another two or three trips. Um, while I was uh, writing about the, um, the the rebuilding of that urethra, while I was there, the surgeon mentioned, "Oh." Yeah, over at Johns Hopkins, they're doing some cadaver work towards a transplant, a penis transplant. I went, whoa, really? So that <laughs> that led to that trip. So very often, one visit will uncover something that could become a separate chapter. So sometimes that happens. Other times, uh, I spend a lot of time uh, contacting, well, poking around online on various military there's lots of military science websites, um, contacting public affairs folks. Like I knew Natick Labs in Massachusetts where they design everything soldiers wear, eat, sleep in, all the accessories. That, that mm. was a fertile place because there's a lot of really interesting labs and weather simulators and such. So I hounded the public affairs officer there for weeks like, what's going on? What can I do? What could be – what's going to be – you know, here's what I do. Here's my book. I often send a copy of a uh, previous book so they have a sense of what I'm looking for. That makes it easier for, for, for them to say, Oh, you know, um, we've got this, uh, situate, we've got this study where people are going to eat combat, nothing but MRE combat rations for six weeks, you know, something like that. They'll, they'll see that it has sort of a roachy air to it. <laughs> no. <laughs> they'll, uh, contact me. I mean, that's my dream is I'll just send them a book and they'll go, oh, I see what you need. Guess what we've got going on. But more often I have to kind of, I'll call and go, well, what about this? And what about this? This sounds promising, this lab over here. What about the camouflage facility? What are they doing? Oh, that's classified. So a lot of this making an utter pest of myself and, um, you know, trying to, uh, get them up to speed on the kinds of things that, that might work for the book. And and sometimes that you know, sometimes people get it or have time to focus on it. Other times they're too busy. So um it's just a lot of turning over rocks, you know, maybe something here. What about over here? Uh and and 
in the you know in the end you you have enough to fill a book. So, do you have any plans for a memoir called Roach, which would follow in your your theme of one word titles? Because I I love I love the way you sort of refer to yourself in the third person. <laughs> uh, I may should just be called Geek because I uh, it sounds more like the we have Bonk, we should have Geek. Um, I uh, yeah I I would I think it'd be very fun to write a memoir, but I don't think that the material would be as interesting as the material that's out there in the world of science. So I, I'm not, I'm not sure it would, I'm, I've lived a life that's really worthy of a memoir, but it, it would be terrific fun. So maybe someday I'll just do it anyway. And in the meantime, um, obviously you've got this book to promote. And after that, uh, do you have a sense of what's on tap for you? Or are you already working on the next thing? I am not already working on the next thing. I have a couple of very uh, larval <laughs> ideas. I don't even, they're so, uh, unformed and vague that I, I, not, I, I can't even voice them yet. But yeah, a, a couple possibilities, but nothing that I've, you know, I haven't signed a contract or anything. And, uh, what's your tour going to look like for, for this book? Do you, do you travel a lot for it? How does, um, how do you, how do you promote something like this? Do you, where do you find your audience? Well, it's the same audience as as always. I think. I mean, the, 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 there may be some new readers in the <clears throat> military science community, but for the most part, I think it's Mary Roach readers, uh, and 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 promotion is is very much the same. It's it's two weeks on the road with um, East Coast and West Coast mostly, um, with events sponsored by bookstores. Uh, a lot of them off-site, but still sponsored by bookstores and and some you know uh, speaker series as well. And uh, we're, we am we've, we've done some outreach to the military world, but um, I don't yeah you know, I don't know how far the book will go with them that will it will be interesting to see whether they because i'm whether they embrace it you know I, i'm an outsider to that world and i'm no matter how hard i try i'm still going to come across like somebody who was never in combat yeah I, i've never never been inside the military not just in not just deployed but just in that culture because it really is a culture unto itself and, and i was a you know a visitor so uh, they might be interested in my perspective. They might not. I don't know. We'll see. Time will tell. We've been talking with Mary Roach. You can find her book, Grunt, in stores right now. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. This has been delightful. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Bookselling Editor Judith Rosen takes us to the Children's Institute, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Benedict Tracker. I'm the author of the Alex Ferris series, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW bookselling editor Judith Rosen is here to tell us all about what's on tap for the ABC Children's Institute. Hi, Judith. Hi, Rose. Hi, Mark. I'm very excited about this year's institute. So tell us what it is. You know, ABC just sounds like it's, you know, the alphabet for kids, but um, here it has something, uh, a slightly different meaning. Yes. Well, ABC is is the children's part of the American Booksellers Association. Mm-hmm. And actually, any ABA member can 
can participate. ABC does a lot of educational activities for um, children's booksellers, and in the last couple years, it has really ramped up an educational program called Children's Institute and has tried to make it a premier place for children's booksellers to come together, share ideas, and meet a lot of pretty astonishing authors. And I think uh, they might be outdoing themselves this year. It's it's not quite as big as Winter Institute, another big educational program that the ABA runs, mm-hmm. but it's growing, and it could become that big. Uh, one of the exciting things this year is a number of booksellers are coming to it for the first time. It's being held a little bit later than it has been in the past. It's in June this year, June 21 through 23, and um, it is right before the American Library Association meeting. So the idea is to maybe do a little cross-pollination between booksellers and librarians, always a good thing, and also to have a reason for publishers to bring big-name authors to Orlando, Florida in the off-season. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be a a pretty... Hot time down there in Florida. I think so in many ways. Uh, well, the opening keynote is with Kate DiCamillo, and um, I know a lot of booksellers have been selling her newest book, uh, Ramey Nightingale, mm-hmm. quite well, and they're really looking forward to hearing her speak about uh, the power of stories and making those connections. Um this year, she's a national summer reading champion, which uh, she would tell you is there's nothing bad about promoting summer reading and sitting around reading. What could what could be better? <laughs> it sounds like a great way to spend the summer. <laughs> I wonder if I could get some time off to do that. <laughs> um, so I know uh, I know this new book of hers has been selling quite well, and so people are excited. And although she lives in cold Minneapolis, those who've already read Ramey or um, uh, or might know this factoid about her anyway, uh, she actually hails from a town not too far from Orlando, so she gets to come oh. home. Oh wow! <laughs> And they say, you can't go home again. (laughs) And one of the other authors lives a little closer uh, year-round to uh, Orlando, and that's Dave Barry, Mm -hmm. uh, the man who brought us juvenile books for adults and now brings us juvenile books for juveniles. (laughs) And he is speaking about a topic near and dear to his heart about not growing up. Well, that sounds like a, a great a great lineup. And tell us a little bit more about this cross pollination with ALA. What what do you think is going to come from that? What's you know, how how is that going to benefit the librarians, the booksellers, and the publishers? Well, I think I think that librarians and booksellers all have the same goal to get kids reading, and um, I think that both sides can benefit from examining, you know, on the bookseller side, there's a roundtable about promoting a modern first library and what should be that first library in a child's home. But I think that librarians are also concerned about getting people to check out books. Those are important to have around young children and what those 
uh, books should be nowadays. Um, uh, I don't mean that you should throw out the Dr. Seuss with the bathwater, but there's a lot of other uh, great books. And I think it's exciting to think about what makes sense in the 21st century. Um, And ALA and the American booksellers are also holding, uh, I guess it'll be more of a discussion about how booksellers can partner with their libraries. Oh, interesting. they already do, but how to do maybe just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And and how do they do that? Or is this what you're you'll be going to uh, to to listen to? Well, I'll be going to listen to it, but I happen to know from talking to some booksellers about some of the cool things they do that um, uh, Andersons uh, in Chicago, for example. Uh, well, they're right outside Chicago in Naperville, Illinois, and they have a program that they participate in with their local library. And uh, if somebody shows their library card, they get a discount, for example. Huh. That's cool. I had no idea that, that those kinds of partnerships and collaborations were going on. Um, yes, and I think the idea is really just to remind both both sets of book people that there's lots of ways to look at it. Um there's a bookstore in um, Minneapolis, the Red Balloon, and they collect signed books for the collection of, of at the University of Minnesota for their children's collection so they can have signed first editions of some of the really outstanding books coming out. Because mm. it's not as if all those authors are coming to the university, but they know who's who's there and, and they get them the books. And they also work with them on panels. So it's a nice way for people in other parts of the country to get to hear what their colleagues are doing and to get new ideas. Um, I have to say that I've also heard a lot of booksellers are really looking forward to um, uh, going to some of the Harry Potter stuff in Orlando. Uh-huh. <laughs> you mean and the I amusement still meet parks? Librarians there. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. So, so is there a Harry Potter theme park in Orlando? I didn't know that either. Uh, yes, yes. So, um, How about that? Uh, at least one bookseller said to me, couldn't we just have dinner with some of the characters? <laughs> <laughs> well, some of them you might want to invite to dinner and some some might not be so much fun to hang out and chat with. Well, I think Harry Potter is on people's minds, uh, a lot of booksellers' minds anyway, because there's a new book coming out mm. at the end of July, uh, the the play Cursed Child and um, so there's just a lot of excitement thinking about Harry Potter and looking back and even though it's in a play form it's considered book eight in the series. Interesting. Um, So tell us what else is on tap for uh, the Children's Institute. I mean you said that uh, ABA has been trying really to build this up. What are they doing to make it a bigger draw? I think it's the caliber of the authors. I think it's some of the talks. Um, there's a, um, a physician in Chicago who started a group called 30 Million Words Initiative uh, trying to help build up the vocabularies of uh, young children. I'm thinking particularly uh, young children in, in um in low economic groups with where the parents might not even think about talking to their kids, where mm. um, other folks, 
that would be a more natural thing to do. And there have been studies showing how important it is to talk to your babies. So I think a lot of that information about early childhood development is quite important to booksellers, and it's also quite important to librarians. Um, there will also be a discussion or presentation uh, about um, the U.S. children's book market and where it's heading. Um, and that's always of interest to see who else is doing what with what. Mm. Yeah. So, um, that, you know, is everybody doing great with YA? What's happening to coloring books, which we hear about adult coloring books, but they're doing very well in children's stories, sure. too. Um, and because we're in Disneyland area or Disney World area, um, there'll even be a presentation on Disney's approach to business excellence. Hmm. I think they've, Disney has, is known for that business approach. So I think that'll be valuable to booksellers. And then I think the highlight of, of, um, Many of the institutes, both Winter Institute and Children's Institute, is a chance to actually get to meet the authors. So there'll be a reception with a lot, a lot of authors, um, nearly a hundred, hundred authors and illustrators will be there. And, um, it's not just people who have books out right this second, but it'll be some authors who have books coming out this fall. Um, things like, uh, people like, uh, Laurie Helsey Anderson, whose latest book is Ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that comes out in October. And a lot of people who adored Chains and Forge are really looking forward to the last volume in the trilogy. Um, people like Tori John, who, uh, is just so funny, and he has a book with an, uh, a picture book on penguin problems, and the cover is hilarious. It's just covered with penguins. Um, and it's wordless, but those penguins get into a lot of very funny problems that I think kids and adults are gonna enjoy. So, it's, uh, uh, there are just a range of different authors, styles, and just having a chance to sample those books is, is, and meet the people behind them is pretty exciting. Well, that sounds fantastic. Judah, thank you so much for giving us this preview, and um, yeah, maybe we'll get a report from you once you come back. Well, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Bridget Hios. I'm the author of It's Getting Hot in Here, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotello, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another deep-digging author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 